Yeah, I love, I, I love this time of year. I love gift giving. You know, some of my favorite gifts growing up, I remember, I remember getting a pogo stick. That was a really fun gift that I used all the time. I remember the original NES system. I remember getting a Vision streetwear skateboard, my very first portable CD player. You know, the kind that if you hit a bump in the car, it would skip. You couldn't work out with it because it would just <laughs> jump tracks. Uh, a few years ago, my wife got me a Panasonic television, which was really hilarious, is uh, she, she, my son kind of ruined the gift for my wife. My wife's like, I got something special for you. She goes in the other room and my four-year-old son at the time whispers to me, she got you a TV. And so I had to act really surprised when it came, but it was such a great gift that I was excited about. Uh, you know, we're entering into this season of gift giving and good gifts are usually well thought out. They fit the person's character and they're often costly. They may not cost a lot of money sometimes, it could, but it may cost a lot of time to either find, to put together, or make, to do research for. The depth of our love will often determine the type of gift we give to others. The depth of our love will often determine the type of gift we give to others. In the book of Malachi, we find a very broken and frustrated Israel complaining that their God, their father, doesn't love them. After years in captivity, they've been allowed to come back home and, and rebuild Jerusalem and its walls and the temple. They thought this would lead to abundance and, and prosperity and peace. But when reality strayed from those truths, they strayed from God. And in the first section, they really question God's love for them. A question that God wholeheartedly refutes. Man, I love you. I've been faithful to you. I'll be faithful to you. I've, I've chosen you. I've adopted you. I've done so many good things, and I'm going to continue to work through you. I love you. In this section, he essentially says, it's not my love for you that should be questioned. It's your love for me. You ever been in a rough relationship and somebody says, it's, it's not me, it's you? It's usually it's you, or it's me, not you, but, but God is saying, it's, it's not me, it's you. I, I question your love for me because I see the type of worship you're offering me, you're gifting to me. Look at verse six, go to Malachi 1. Malachi is right before Matthew. You will need your Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one back there, but I'm gonna have you underlining, highlighting a few things. Look at Matthew 6, have God's word in front of you. So again, God has exclaimed over and over again that he loves them, and then we get to 6. A son, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you. That's the Lord of angel armies to you. He says, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So in this love relationship, God is not the one holding back. They failed to honor him. This term honor is kavod. It's, it's often translated as glory. They have failed to <clears throat> glorify him to praise him, to lift up his name. They have failed to fear him, show him fear. Now, fear here is less about 
being horrified and more about reverence, respect, and honor in the face of, of a loving God. And, in, and it's a fear, it's a, it's a respect and all that moves us to loving obedience. You do not honor me. You do not glorify me. You do not fear me. You do not respect me. And who's to blame? Who's to blame? Look halfway through the passage. She says, oh, priests who despise my name. If a football team fails, who's the first one to get let go? The coach, the leader. He's going after the coach. Oh, priest who despise my name. Now, what a, what a statement. What would it take for a priest to despise the name of God? What is, what is God talking about here? So let's just pick apart a few words here. First, underline name. In this context, a name was shorthand for a person's character and the works that emanated from that character. Who God was and what he had done for them, they ongoingly despised. They didn't just despise him once. They, they're living a, a life of contempt for God. They're despising him. Now, again, How would a priest continually despise God? Underline the word despise. The idea here isn't revulsion, like disgust. It's not like, you know, I despise Star Wars because it's for nerds, or I despise eating vegetables. The idea here, it's it's a little bit more nuanced. This despising is an attitude of apathy treating something as if it were insignificant or worthless. Who God was and what he had done wasn't important to them anymore. And as a result, worshiping him became unimportant, which is fitting. Worship is, the term is is from an older term, worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H, ship. And it's to proclaim something or someone's worth. It's to say that there has worth. And so when we come, we gather, and we worship, we're, we're proclaiming God's worth to us, who he is, what he has done. They did not ascribe worth to who God was or what he had done. Although God was faithful, Loving Father, who redeemed them from bondage, parted seas, fed them miraculously, and preserved them in captivity. The troubles of life and their sin had blinded them to those spiritual realities, those glorious spiritual truths, and their worship faltered. He's saying, you do not fear me. You do not glorify me. You do not honor me. You do not worship me because you do not value who I am and what I have done in relation to who I am. Where's my worship? Where's my worship? And this lack of worship probably didn't happen overnight. You know, it's not like these priests were offering true heartfelt worship up to God and then one day decided, yeah, I'm kind of done doing that. It was probably a gradual thing. Day by day, year by year, decade after decade, 
as their evaluation of God lessened, so did their worship. To the point where true worship ceased altogether. Here's our first kind of big idea. When we lose sight of God's worth, worship will wane in frequency. It'll lessen in frequency. When we lose sight of God's worth, worship will wane in frequency. Our regular engagement or lack of engagement and heartfelt worship correlates to our view of God. So if you're struggling with worship, you're really struggling to value God. If your worship is small, your picture of God is small. If your God is truly loving and good and faithful, he's a just creator and sustainer. If God has really saved you from sin and death through the work of his son, Jesus, if your heart, listen to me, if your heart is truly set on those things, you will be moved to worship more regularly. You'll be moved to worship more regularly. You'll find yourself regularly taken by his love. You'll be spontaneously moved to thankfulness throughout the day. You'll be driving your car. You'll be cutting hair, cutting that hair. You'll be, you'll be working out. And then you'll be shook with awe and humility and reverence. Because your mind and heart are set on who God is and what he has done for you. You'll be moved to worship. God's people have lost sight of his worth. They have failed to worship him. They despise his name, but they don't see it that way. They're like, how? What have we done? Look at the end of verse six. How have we despised your name? What proof do you have that we're treating you as insignificant or worthless? And God says, well, here's exhibit A. Look at verse seven in the first half of verse eight. By offering polluted food upon my altar. And then they say to God, but you say, how have we polluted you? God responds by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. There's that word again. Lord's table is worthless. The altar is meaningless. And you do that when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? It says, you offer polluted animals upon my altar, thereby claiming that the altar is worthless. Polluted can also mean defiled or unclean. And to fully understand this transgression, we've got to go further back in the Old Testament. We've got to go back to Adam and Eve. And it starts there with Adam and Eve, all humanity fell into sin. And because the wages of sin is death, separation from God, God ultimately instituted a sacrificial system as a way for sinful people to find forgiveness in their relationship with God. An animal was placed on an altar, on God's altar, as a substitute for the person offering the animal. And that animal's death provided a temporary covering for sins, as that animal was a substitute for the person offering the animal. And for this sacrifice, the animal had to be without blemish or defect. It had to be healthy, pure, whole. Which means that this was a sacrificial offering. Such an animal would have been expensive compared to, you know, a three-legged, one-eyed, you know, goat or bull or whatever 
would have been a little less expensive. They would have seen that as worthless. So you to put your best before God and offer that up as a sacrifice. And part of the priest's job was to determine whether or not a sacrifice was acceptable. They would look in, probably like a dog show, they'd come in, you know, the dog, just a pointer, and they'd kind of look at, look at it and examine it and, and be like, this is good. And then they would offer it up for a sacrifice. And God took this very seriously. Back in Leviticus, Aaron's sons offered up unauthorized sacrifices, and God consumed them with fire. And so Malachi's contemporaries maybe fell asleep during that lesson in Sunday school. Because they were offering up animals that were blind, lame, and sick. Now, guys, we can adopt those animals. They're great. You want to adopt a one-eyed dog? Awesome. With a snaggletooth, you know, three legs. It's okay. But God had said, this is what I desire. This is what I desire. Look at verse 8. When you offer up blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Then he says this, I love this. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. He's like, you wouldn't bring that junk to a potluck at the governor's house and expect him to accept it. I mean, how ridiculous is it that you would expect me to accept it? We're having a Thanksgiving meal next week. Please do not bring two-week-old leftovers. It will get turned away. If it smells funky, it'll get turned away. If it's rotting, it will get turned away. And guys, I'm not that picky. But God is. He desires for a certain type of sacrifices. Look at verse 9. And now you entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you're trying to butter me up. You're trying to butter me up so that I'll be gracious to you with bargain bin sacrifices. Dollar store sacrifices. Sacrifices that aren't really sacrifices, and you have the intestinal fortitude to ask me to treat you with favor. Here's, here's how I know you don't love me. Here's how I know you've lost sight of who I am and what I've done for you. You offer up your scraps. You offer up your worst. Broken things. You have given me the rest, not your best. If the if the depth of our love determines the type of gift we give to others, God's saying, you don't love me very much. You don't love me very much. When we lose sight of God's word, our worship will wane in quality. Our worship will wane in, in quality. Now, today, we no longer offer sacrifices, or at least I hope you don't. As your pastor, I'm, I'm going to say that, does, that doesn't work anymore. You know, if you're finding a rabbit in your yard and, and laying your hands on it, and then you have another rabbit, that's the escape rabbit. Like, just, just don't, don't do that. Uh, you probably get in trouble if you're in city limits. Um, and, and so do we, we don't offer sacrifices anymore because of our just and loving Father 
offering up his son, Jesus Christ, our perfect and spotless offering. Our, our, our clean lamb, without blemish or defect. He was sinless in our place so that we could be forgiven. It was the final, once and for all, sacrifice. Because he's man, he can take our place. Because he's God, his death has infinite worth. He can take care of our sin, past, present, and future. The old system was, was a shadow pointing us to a greater sacrifice. Because back in the day, you, you'd sacrifice, and then you'd walk away, and then you'd send some more. And so you'd have to come back later, sacrifice, walk away, and send some more. But not with the death of our sacrifice, our ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. We no longer have to do that. And so, so does God still, though, want something from me? You know, we're not to offer sacrifices in that way, but, but when it comes to worship, is, is there something I'm going to give? And, and, and the reality is, is, yeah. Paul talks about it in Romans. After talking about all the good things God has done, he talks about justification and righteousness, not by works, he talks about Gentiles being like all of this theological truth about the gospel. And then he says this real quick. Just turn to Romans 12. Turn to Romans 12, 1, and then we're going to jump back. Turn to Romans 12, 1. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's not about death anymore. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are all priests today. It's biblical truth. You and I, we're all priests. There's not much that separates me from you other than good. No, I'm talking about <laughs> We're all priests. And we're all called to offer a sacrifice, our, our entire selves, all of us, our entire being. Everything is what we're to offer up and worship to him. There's a story of a young believer, and, and she was in kind of a destitute environment, culture, country. And for the first time, she saw an offering plate being passed around. Now, we don't do an offering plate. We give online. Uh, when I was growing up, they had the guy with the stick that would kind of wave it in your face and make you feel guilty. Uh, but he, she saw the offering plate being passed around and people taking money out of their pockets and, and dropping it in the offering plate. And as it was getting closer to her, she, she reached in her pockets and she was like, I, I just don't have a lot of money to give. In fact, I have no money in my pockets to give right now. And so when the plate got to her, she took it, she put it on the ground and she stood in the plate and she yelled out loud, God, I have no money but you can have all of me. You can have all of me. And that's really what, what worship is. It's, it's more than just coming here and, and singing and, and, and turning on K-Love and, and rocking out to some mercy me. It's, it's more than that. It's offering all of ourselves, every aspect of our lives, up to God. It's a spiritual act. And if... We're in line with our passage today. It's offering the best of ourselves up to God as a spiritual act of worship. And what do you, what do you mean the best of ourselves? 
What does that really mean? Let's talk about this for a second. When it comes to time, do we give God our best in regards to kingdom work, reading his word, prayer, fellowship, service? Or do we spend time busying ourselves with worldly matters, trivial matters, and and try to squeeze God in as best as we can with the leftovers? Are we giving him the best of our time or are we giving him the rest of our time? When it comes to money, do you give generously so God's work can flourish or do you hoard and consume and then drop you know, a tenner in the offering box when it gets passed around or the offering plate when it gets passed around? I mean, do we, do we give him the best, the first fruits, or do we give him the rest? When it comes to singing, Men, do we give him our best or do we give him our rest? The rest. Do we sing joyfully with expectation? I don't don't like the music. I don't care if you don't like the music. I don't love all the music of every church I've ever been to. But are are the words true? Are Are the words on the screen true? Is God pleased when I sing? Yeah. Does it matter if my voice is terrible? No, maybe to your wife, but not to God. I mean, do we, do we give him our best do we, or do we just kind of mumble through worship? Kind of looking at our watch and then, and then we get in our car on the way home and we, we crank up some Bon Jovi and we sing to the top of our lungs. Like, do we give him the best or do we give him the rest when it comes to passion, emotion? Do we give him the best or do we give him the rest? I mean, are we excited about, I mean, really ask yourself this question. Are you excited about what God is doing in this world? Are you excited about evangelism, discipleship, missions? Went to Greg's missions uh, dinner the other night and all these missionaries were talking about all the different things that God is doing. And it was, it was, it was got me pumped. But am I always that way? Or do I save my my energy, my emotions, my passion for things like like sports or politics? Those things really get me revved up. Those things really get me excited. But the work of God, eh, it's okay. I mean, do we give him our best or do we give him the rest? The ability and desire to offer the best of ourselves as living sacrifices comes from a heart that fully sees God for who he is and what he has done. Israel had failed to give God their best, and God says this. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God's saying, because you're not in it, shut the doors. Shut the door of the temple and don't let it hit you where the good Lord splits you. Shut it all down. Shut it down. You have lost sight of who I am. So let me remind you. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord 
of hosts. You may treat my name as insignificant, but there will be a day when people from all over the world will offer pure offerings, acceptable sacrifices to it. My name will be great, even though you despise it. Look at verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. The priests despise the entire sacrificial system. They say, oh, this is doing all this work makes me so weary. It's, it's, and they snort. And, and this language tells us that their responsibilities have become burdensome. They were going through the motions. It was heartless ritual. Which brings me to my last point. When we lose sight of God's worth, worship will wane in authenticity. Worship will wane in authenticity. When we worship, God wants our hearts, not heartless ritual. God wants our hearts and not heartless ritual. Yes, he cares about what we do. But most importantly, he cares about our heart's disposition as we do it. Because nobody wants to be in a relationship when the other party is going through the motions. Do you want your marriage to be a going through the motions marriage? I mean, I've never heard wedding vows go like this. You know, hey, I love you. But if I stop loving you, I'll pretend to love you, even though I find loving you to be a nuisance. Nobody says that. God does not want a box checking, heartless faith. He wants our hearts. Because they were wearily checking the boxes, the priests got careless. They were even offering up stolen animals. How crazy is that? Don't mug someone. Steal their money. Give it to God. And then say, hey, look how sacrificial I am. That's what they were doing. And so God delivers them over to misfortune. Look at verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, perfect, acceptable sacrifice, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. He's saying, cursed is he who has what's best, but gives the rest. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among nations. Here's, here's why I'm against these types of people, says God, because I'm the king of kings. My name will be respected. Please, please, don't forget that. When we lose sight of God's worth, our worship will wane. And frequency and quality, and it'll wane in authenticity. And, and you may be struggling to worship him with one of those areas. You, know, you may haven't worshipped him in a long time. I haven't worshipped him authentically, I mean... I've not really given him my heart. And there are a lot of areas of my life I've not offered up to him. Now, you can have my Sunday morning. But my Monday through Friday when I'm at work, I'm not giving that to you. My free time? No. I'm going to go ahead and hold on to that one. My money? Eh, it's mine. I'll, I'll, I'll give you what I can. 
We may struggle with that because we've lost sight of who God, who God really is. You know, maybe you grew up in the church and you've been inundated from the age of three with the character and acts of God and, and these realities about who God is, what he has done, they do very little to move your heart. Maybe at one time the person and work of God was so real to you, it brought you to your knees. But now you struggle because that sense of all respect and humility has been choked out by worldly problems and personal struggles. Maybe you haven't worshipped him in a while. Maybe you're holding back. Maybe you're faking it till you make it. Here is my prayer for you. I pray that minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, you see with unobstructed clarity the person and works of God. And I'm going to give you a really practical way to do that. Buy some note cards. Buy some sticky cards, sticky, sticky pad. And write down what is true. Write down what is true about God. Write down what is true about what he has done in your life, what he has done in scripture on our behalf. And then put those note cards everywhere. If you're really struggling with worship, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to dare you to do this. Put those note cards everywhere, on your mirror, on your dashboard, at, at your, your office, on your desk. Put them in your wallet. Make it your home screen, on your computer, on your phone, on your iPad, on your watch. You know, continually put these things in front of you. And I pray that, that through that, his character demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ becomes real to you. I said at the beginning of this message and throughout that the depth of our love will often determine the type of gift we give to someone. I pray that because of these spiritual realities, your love deepens for him and you are moved to offer up every aspect of your life all the time with all your heart. Amen? Let's pray.